Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The show is about to begin. This episode of Concerts That Made Us, I'm chatting with Jim Hustwit. Jim is a musician and composer for TV and film. He has worked with such brands as the BBC, Universal and Apple. He also has his own company called LARP Music. Now before we get chatting to Jim, we're going to take a listen to one of his compositions. It's Legends Don't Die featuring Kay Sparks, courtesy of Audio Socket ASX. So, without further ado... Let's get on with the show. See him swerving and cursive, elusive, it's rather intrusive. We just keep winning now. We just keep winning now. Just wait, grind don't stop, people feeding this hunger Killing everything, yeah, I feel like a monster Homie is dead, I just bought me a shovel Bury him daily, the new we just hustle Flow is magnificent, we insignificant What's the predicament, we just so militant Push it, push it, push it. Flow is magnificent, we insignificant. Push it, 
Jim, you're very welcome to Concerts That Made Us. Thank you very much, Brad. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. It's great to have you. Now, I'm dying to find out your musical history and how you got to the point where you are. You're a composer, producer. You run yes. LARP music and yes. you make compositions for the likes of the BBC, Universal. But there's one piece of information that sticks out at me. And I can't believe you haven't had this wiped from the internet. You were responsible for getting Crazy Frog to number one. Uh, I can't claim 100% responsibility that, but I was certainly part of the team that, yeah. Yeah, I and I sometimes joke, because this was in a previous life. When I was doing the Crazy Frog, that was when I was, um, I, was a, I was a marketing consultant, basically. And so I kind of, it was latterly that I sort of shifted into music. And I, I kind of joke now that everything I'm doing musically in the world is to sort of like uh, make reparations for crimes against music by helping the crazy frog get to number one. But that said, you know, I also joke that the crazy frog prevented Coldplay from getting to number one. And in many people's eyes, that's, that's, that's heroic uh, yeah. and, and well received. So it depends which way you look at it. Yeah. That's a bit of a, a saving grace. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, I'm sure we'll touch on how you managed to get such a, I don't know what you could say, such a song to number one mm. later. But uh, can you, we'll move on to your personal history. Can you remember sure. your very first musical memory? Yeah, it was in, funny you should ask that because just the other week for something that I'm doing, I had to delve into an old LP called, it's called All Aboard Children's Songs. And it's got, it's it's like a compilation album of loads of different songs, and there's there's one called the Laughing Policeman. There's uh, Ernie who drove the fastest milk cart in the West, which was a song by Benny Hill. Oh. Um, and it was this compilation album, and there was also there was um, a song called Bum Titty Bum, which was Sophia Loren and Peter Sellers. All these kind of random songs, but those are my first musical memories of putting that LP on and listening to that. But weirdly, when you go back as well, like the Benny Hill track. Ernie, who drove the fastest milk cart in the West, the the lyrics in that song are all about the reason he drove a fast milk cart was because he was he was having an affair with every woman in the neighbourhood, so he had, to, he had to drive away really quickly. So as a kid listening to that, you, you you know today you might go, well that's a little bit inappropriate for a kid's song, but I didn't I didn't I didn't read between the lines. I just it was just a cool quirky song about a guy who drove a fast milk cart. So. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's definitely one of the the most interesting answers I've heard so far. Anyway. <laughs> But uh, <laughs> was there a was there a point then when you were a child that kind of opened your eyes to music, made you want to maybe pursue music as a career? Well, I think the career thing came very late on, but I think there was one seminal moment for me was um, at school in assembly. Um, a girl got up in assembly and played Wombles of Wimbledon on the clarinet. So for anyone who's who wasn't born 
I mean, I was born in I was born in seventy nine, but even the Wombles predated me. Um, but it's basically a sort of animated cartoon about these little these little creatures that live on Wimbledon Common in London and go around picking up litter and and sort of building their homes from it. So early early recycling message, but um, yeah, and and seeing her do that on stage or on, in assembly, it blew my mind. She she recreated this theme tune that I knew from television and she'd recreated it on this instrument. And I was just like, whoa, what just happened? And I went home that night and I said to my mum, I said, I, I want to play the clarinet. I want to play Wimbledon on the clarinet. And I think that was probably the seminal moment that kind of got me interested in music. And, and weirdly as well, I think looking back, um, the reason I started electric guitar was because I wanted to be able to emulate Guns N' Roses. I was hugely into sort of like rock and like it was Guns N' Roses and Def Leppard. And um, I wanted to be able to play Paradise City. And so mm. that was kind of what prompted me to get um, an electric guitar. So there's these sort of things that fall into place. And I think with me, for some reason, it was emulate. Emulation, it wasn't so much emulation as I want to be Axl Rose or I want to be a particular person, but I wanted to be able to recreate these these songs myself mm. um and that's what sort of got me into into music um but I, it's something that kind of touch on quite i'm often asking people this question as well about when they decided that it could potentially be a, a profession because i certainly grew up and the arts were never presented to me as a viable career um particularly up in the north of england it's like you know arts is something they do down in london um and it's nice it's, you know, it's nice to go to the theater but you know get yourself a proper job um so it, it wasn't really ever presented as a, as a career to me and it was i was i'm late to this it was i was about late 20s or maybe 30 when i sort of quit everything so you know we talked about crazy frog so at the time i was a marketing consultant and i quit everything to do music full time. So that kind of professional thing is I'm, I'm pretty late to the party. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's maybe a, a shared English and Irish thing of the arts mm. isn't a viable career. You know, when you're growing up, it's like, yeah, you can have these dreams of maybe being a rock star, but when you get to like 12, 13, get them out of your head and start to focus on a real career, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's funny because I think a lot of that comes from just a lack. I don't want to say ignorance, but I don't want to make it. I don't want to make it sound bad. But even for myself, like when I quit my sort of marketing career to do music full time, a few years later I ended up becoming musical director for a play at the National Theatre. Now, up until getting that job, I didn't even know that being a musical director was a thing. And for anyone who is who doesn't know, like a musical director within a theatre show is the person that ensures that the band come in and out at the right time. Because obviously you've got a you know live soundtrack, you can't, pre well, sometimes it is pre-recorded, but if you've got a live band, the musical director is responsible for that and sort of leading rehearsals and things like that. I had no idea that that, that was a job. And so if I think back to sort of careers counsellors at school, it's like, it's you know really industry specific. And unless you've, worked within that industry you don't understand the ins and outs you don't understand that there's people behind the scenes producing artists that there's mix engineers that there's mastering engineers that there's session guitarists that there's you know there's a whole gamut of careers in music that you you know aside from the rock stars that you kind of don't really understand until you're a part of that industry so you know my my poor, poor careers counselor whoever it was um he probably grown up in leeds his entire life um been a careers counselor i don't know but and he had he had no idea so he wasn't really in a, a good place to sort of you know help me in terms of anything artistic yeah yeah and um 
what was it that made you reconsider your career and make you want to make the change? Well, I think I think I was I'm a bit of an idealist, um, and I, I've always been very creative at heart. And it was I I'd started doing the singer songwriter thing. So in about I think it was about 2006, I started noodling around on the guitar and singing for the first time. I'd always play guitar but never actually sort of sung or written songs and I'd started writing songs and a, a mate lent me um a four track recorder um which again I mean we're talking like this stuff doesn't exist anymore but basically put in a cassette tape and you can record four different tracks on top of each other so I recorded the guitar then I recorded some vocals and then I did some vocal harmonies um and I, I loved it I was like wow this this is amazing and and I also had a friend at the time who it was um he's a really tough crowd um very sort of quick to 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 take the piss so to speak but he was he was genuinely impressed and so that sort of made me go okay well maybe there is something in this so it, it kind of started as a this sort of singer songwritery thing i was doing a lot i was playing a lot and i was playing sort of two sometimes two three times a week because this was i'd never done it before and i was conscious i wasn't very good at it um and i, I kind of but i got the bit between my teeth and i was like All right, i want to get good at this and at the at that time i was there was i was quite often playing at the same venues as Ed Sheeran. This was before Ed Sheeran was known. Um, and he was, even back then, I think this is what maybe people don't realize about, you know, Ed Sheeran broke, but for f- probably five or six years before he actually broke, he was amazing at what he did. And I think he he worked so hard. He was like, for every one gig that I did, he was probably doing five. Oh, um, um, but he also had this ability to kind of just like captivate an audience in a way that, you know, a lot of performers don't do anybody anybody who's ever played in a pub uh, knows that you know most people are just going to talk over um your your set um but ed sheeran had this amazing ability to shut people up um but anyway so i was doing this thing a songwriter thing and i just sort of thought man i'd love to kind of have a go at this have a crack at this professionally and it got to a point where i was like okay well let's let's try and make a go of this um because the thing is as well like working on an album i was i was doing it in little pockets of like a couple of hours here in an evening a couple of hours here on a weekend and it was like this is going to take me years and years to do if i can't dedicate some sort of solid time to it so i saved up some money to keep me going for a year to pay the 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 rent and the bills and what have you and i just thought you know okay let's do this worst case scenario in a year's time i go back to marketing having had an amazing year of just making music all day every day um, best case scenario i can try to maybe make ends meet and sort of try to forge a career but i'm ju- yeah i think i'm an idealist brian i kind of think like if i'm going to spend a third of my life working i kind of want it to be something that i you know i'm passionate about and that energizes me and makes me feel alive so um i think that was just sort of going right let's just let's just give this a go i'd rather try it and fail than not try it and always wonder what might have been. So threw caution to the wind and um, packed in my job. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of that whole thing of uh, make sure work doesn't actually feel like work, you know. Yeah. And you'll have a happy life. Totally. But, um, yeah. geez, it must have been a very scary time. But uh, did you complete the album or did you go straight into the composer side of things? No, no, I did. I completed the album. Um, but funnily enough, the album was called Hanging Up My Cape. Um and everybody, when I released it, they sort of said, oh, is this, is this your swan song? Is this, is this the end of uh, Acoustic Gym was my performing name? Um, and at the time it really wasn't, but actually it turned out it was um, because, so, you know, you know, concerts that made us, one concert that kind of led to this decision, I was doing a, we'd had a gig up, up in Camden in London and 
this gig was everything I dreamt of a gig ever being. You know, there was 200 people there. They were all really into the music. Um, we were getting call and response going between us and the crowd. At one point when I sort of dropped the level down, the whole band sort of crouches down and the whole <laughs> audience was crouching down with us as well. And then we launched into the sort of final chorus and everyone's back up. And it was, it was, it was, you know, it was the dream. It was like, this is what I want every gig to be like. But for some reason, after that gig, I felt really low and really flat. And basically what it was, was it's like we'd reached this pinnacle, but I kind of realized that that was never really what I wanted to do. I never really wanted to be a performer and a, and a singer-songwriter. The bit that I loved was being in the engine room, was being in the studio, was the writing, the recording, and the, the production, the kind of mechanics of it. Um, and I think that that concert was, for me, like a, a, a big moment when I sort of, you know, that was, the, that was as good as it gets, so why do I feel like crap afterwards and I think it was that realization that I spent so much time and energy getting to that point I'd actually missed some of the kind of warning signs which was actually this you don't really want to do this and this is not you know you're not following your heart um so that was what created the shift I finished the album I even went on a little tour around the UK with it um and the, but then I came back and I was like no I want to focus on and the production side of things and the recording and the and the composing. Um and so yeah, that was the shift from singer songwriter into sort of um more composition and production. Yeah, yeah. Jeez, that that actually blows my mind now. That's something you never hear. You know, you had probably <laughs> the greatest gig and it made you realise that's not what you wanted to do. Yeah. You know? But it's funny because one of your guests, um I can't remember his surname, Alex, he was sort of blew up on TikTok. Oh um, Alex Miller. But he, Alex Miller, that was it. Yeah. So Alex was talking about how when he gets up on stage, he he just feels this energy and it just sort of like it flows through him and he just feels like he's got he it just feels so right. I think for me, I get I get really nervous before I go on stage. And while some people I think harness that nervous energy and turn it into something incredible, I tried to do that, but it was always like it always felt like the hours leading up to that gig was I was so nervous and sort of withdrawn um that it just never felt like a really good fit and you know i try i did it for years i was at it for sort of three or four years and it took me quite a while to sort of realize that um yeah in, in spite of that it was just it wasn't quite right but yeah i, I can it's funny because most people sort of have that gig experience and be like right this is it it's happening <laughs> yeah. but for me it was it was the, the exact opposite um but somebody once asked me um a question about because I was sort of doing a lot of songwriting at the time and they sort of said, you know, do you want, because there's obviously a lot of people behind the scenes who write songs for artists. And then there's a lot of people out there who are artists themselves. And one person said, okay, if there were two doors, one of them had artists and the other had songwriter above it, which one would you walk through? Um, and I remember at the time thinking probably songwriter, because that means I'm behind the scenes. I don't have to be out front and on stage. Um, and yeah, there was another kind of like things that happened throughout kind of that, that that period where I was like, yeah, it, well, for example, finishing the album, like, you know, most people finish an album. It's like, brilliant. Yeah. I listened to an interview with them. Um, oh, I can't remember his name now. James Morrison. Um, and he said he hates the whole studio thing. He can't wait to get back out there gigging. Yeah. Um, and I was, I was the opposite. <laughs> I was like, I, I just finished my album and I was like, I just, I don't want to leave the studio. I want to go back in and do another one. So yeah, there was several warning signs. They just sort of said, actually, you know, my time is better spent in the studio. So, We've heard your your best gig. Would there be a gig you'd consider your worst gig? Although I don't know if that one, you know, it's a bit of a, a mix up. Your best gig led to a bad feeling, but is there a, a gig that just didn't go right? I mean, 
uh, there's been so many bad gigs. <laughs> it's ridiculous because the whole thing, the weird thing about London is that on any given night, there are literally hundreds of pubs hosting acoustic showcases or, you know, music nights. And, but what, what that means is that it's very, very difficult for venues to actually get people in because there's, you know, it's like literally the pub next door could have a night on and the pub next door could. So you have this kind of whole gigging um, sort of concept that if you're going to play at this night, you have to bring X number of people. Mm. So usually when you agree to do a gig in London, it's like, well, you've got, okay, you've got to bring 10 people. You've got to bring 15. And the bigger the venue and the more sort of prominent it is, the more people you have to bring, which I kind of understand. But at the same time, that kind of leads to um, this kind of whole weird thing where people are coming to see their friends. They're not there for the music. So once their friend's band has played, they either leave or they just talk and they're not interested in the other music. So in terms of it gets people through the door and buying drinks for the venue and obviously selling tickets, which is what they want. But in terms of for the musician, in terms of exposing their music to people who might potentially like it, it's it's kind of a bit pointless. I actually found busking on the South Bank, I A, made more money and B, um, did got more f- sort of fans or interest in my music from doing that for a couple of hours than probably all the gigs I played in London over like, like a year period. Um, so there were loads of really bad ones, but the, the worst one was when I I was approached by an agent um, uh, who's a, a lovely lady called Emma uh, from Rwanda who just really liked my music and she sort of said, you know, can I be your manager? And at the time I was like, oh yeah, amazing. I could, I'd love someone to be this, to be my manager. Um, so she organized me to sort of take part in this um, music competition in Grenoble in um, France. And as part of that, she organized this gig at a, a sort of like a, a music venue in Grenoble as well. Um, and that music venue, um, first of all, they said they'd provide accommodation. I was like, this is incredible. It's like, <laughs> not only am I going out to France to play this gig, but they're providing accommodation. The accommodation was basically uh, a camp bed on a building site. Oh. <laughs> um, and the music venue, I turned up to the venue that night to play and there were two people there. Oh man. <laughs> um, and literally, other than that, that's not including the barman. There was two people, um, and the, but do you know what? Actually, the amazing thing was that the one person that was there was this girl called Emily, who knew my stuff, really liked it, and had travelled two hours to come and see me play live. Oh. Her and her boyfriend were the only two people in there. So whilst it was sort of from a, you know, an ego perspective, and just like what is going on, I've come all this way and I'm playing to two people. Um, but at the same time, I was so immensely grateful that she had traveled two hours to come and see mm. me that I played and I played like literally I played an entire set for her and her boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it, yeah, it was, it was a bit of a kind of like a, a down moment when you sort of do that. But then, you know, I've I'd, I'd done a lot of gigs in London as well, where there's probably only like two or three people in the room anyway, a lot of kind of open mics, mm. you know, you don't hear about this in the glory days when people are sort of <laughs> filling Wembley Stadium, but Ed Sheeran will have done his fair share of gigs in sort of like a back room in London oh, yeah. where there's been like two people and one of them will have been passed out. So technically <laughs> there's only one. Yeah, yeah. You uh, you mentioned busking. I've had conversations in the past now about busking and to me, that is my worst nightmare as a musician. You know, standing on the street is usually in your hometown where people will know you. And the fear of making eye contact with someone you know walking by, was that, and as a guy who didn't like 
the the performing side of music how did you actually deal with that yeah it's it is it was difficult um but it's one of those things if if i think if you want to be an artist and you know you're we're talking about and this is obviously in a time as well once upon a time you could be an artist and make a load of money by selling records mm. you don't do that anymore so the, the live element is really important um but if, if you're going to be an artist you have to be able to perform and i think that's what great performers do is that they they're not self-conscious they're able to sort of leave any sort of element of self-consciousness at the door and and literally just focus all their energy and emotion into conveying what their song's about and that's what makes you know a great performer and so i was sort of going through the motions of saying like look if i want to be an artist i've got to be able to perform anyway and that includes on the street but i think weirdly um once First of all, you rock up with your little suitcase, your amp, your guitar on your back and your microphone stand for, and you're sort of putting it up in the, first of all, picking a, picking where to play. Mm. Um, that's a bit tricky. Um, and then you sort of get it all up and you kind of, okay, well, this is weird. But once you get going, it's almost slightly less intimidating because it's just people walking past. And the only people that will stop and listen are those that are genuinely interested. Mm. Whereas in a pub, you know, you can start playing a set and there's just nobody cares and everyone's sort of talking and, and talking louder so that their friends can hear them over you playing. Um, so yes, it is quite tricky. I mean, the one thing about you saying in your, if in your hometown, London's pretty big. So the chances of me running into anyone that I knew, uh, were, were, were pretty slim. Um, but yeah, it, it is an intimidating prospect, but then at the same time, it's like, I think, yeah, if, if you want to perform, you've, you've got to be able to do that. And so I, I pushed myself through that self-consciousness and sort of like that fear barrier. Um, and it never really got any easier. Um, but, but yeah, but as I say, the busking thing into, I always felt in terms of, you know, I was probably making, you'd probably make about 25 pounds an hour, um, busking, selling CDs and people sort of donating stuff. You know, I've heard people talk about, you go up to Oxford and Cambridge where there's loads of tourists, you can make 40 quid an hour, um, um, which is, you know, that's more than you're going to make in a, in a pub because pubs generally don't pay you. Um, they'll give you a percentage of ticket sales after you've 15 people have been in, which, you know. It works out to something which might or might not cover your, met, your tube fare home. Probably not. Um, so, yeah, from a busking point of view, I felt I got better exposure and certainly earned more money um, busking than I than I did in any any pub gigs in London. That's something I definitely understand. I've heard uh, I've heard of a few guys up in Dublin that have actually made a career out of busking. You know, they'll go out yeah, seven yeah, days absolutely. a week, and that's that's it for them. You know, that's the top for them. They don't have any interest in progressing further they actually make a a decent living out of busking yeah. you know yeah absolutely yeah but um so you you decided you didn't want to be performing what were the steps you took to become a composer be working behind the scenes be a producer uh so i think the first thing i did was i mean i had did i have a copy of yeah i had i had a computer i had a uh, a mac with logic on it um, but I didn't really, I, you know, I had a very rudimentary knowledge. So the first thing I did was a 12, like one evening a week for 12 weeks course, uh, to, uh, on logic, just to basically kind of go, okay, take the mystery out of it. Teach me the basics of, um, of what I'm doing so that I can then hopefully take my ideas and then sort of turn them into a, into a recording. So that was phase one. Um, then thereafter, um, very much a case of just um, writing as much as possible, which is weird because in the first instance, I found that difficult. There's this 
I, for many years, I said, I really want to be a music producer, but yet I would do anything to avoid sitting down and producing music. <laughs> and you get to a point where you go, okay, well, I'm, I'm saying one thing, but my actions are telling a very different story. So it's like, if I want to be a music producer, then I need to produce music. Um, it's like, so, you know, to, to Americans talk about get on the court. It's like, if you, you know, you can't influence a game unless you get on the court. You can still sit in the stands shouting as much as you mm. want. So I sort of went, okay, cool. So what's going on here? And it's, you know, I think a lot of creatives have it. Um, there's a great book by called the, the War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. And he talks about it as resistance. It's like you procrastinate, you do anything to stop yourself sitting down and doing the work, whether that's writing, you know, you could be writing poetry or writing a book or writing music, whatever it is. It's usually a creative thing, I think. Um, you've experienced resistance. And I realized that mine was basically sort of fear of, I had this big idea that if I sat down to write a piece of music, I would turn something out that would be just absolute gold. It would go to number one instantly. And by doing that, I was just putting this insane amount of pressure on myself. And given that I was just starting out, there was no way it was going to, of course it's going to be crap because I'm, I'm, I'm finding my feet in the same way that, you know, Shakespeare's probably the first plays he wrote were, were <laughs> rubbish. You know, we, we know him for sort of 12, 15, 20 of his big plays. He's written hundreds and most of those have fallen by the wayside. And that's not even including the ones that he was, would have been doing on bits of scrap toilet paper when he was, you know, so it's the idea of having to sort of push through that. So I think that was a stage for me was to sort of get beyond that fear of failure and under, you know, understanding that the reason that I wasn't doing it was because I was scared of failing. Um, and the idea of writing for the bin, just sitting down and writing and going, hey, do you know what? I'm going to sit down for a few hours and do this. And if it's if it's crap, I'll throw mm. it away. And I'm okay with that. It's fine because it's all part of the process. It will. It's all those those sort of baby footsteps. Um, so yeah, I was just writing a lot, and I was very lucky to have a close friend who was a sort of very talented um, producer who wrote a lot of what's called production music. So a lot of the music that we hear in TV and well, certainly TV um, is what's called production music. So it's music that's pre-composed, sits on a library and then is taken off the shelf to, to by editors, directors, whoever, to sort of fit their musical project. Uh, he was a really successful production music composer for EMI. And he was very generous with me that he started sending me old briefs. Oh. And by that, I don't mean his old underpants. <laughs> I mean, literally like briefs of music that the, he would receive from EMI saying, this is what we want. This is the genre. Here are some references of kind of stuff that we like. Um, and they were old, so they weren't live, but he'd send me them. And then I would sort of go, okay, cool. Well, I'm going to write to this brief and see what happens. And then I'd send that music to him and he would be really good. He'd sit with me and talk me through, you know, this is good. This is good. This isn't great. And just, you know, it just literally bit by bit, I've, I've very much learned on the job. I've had no since that logic course, everything I've done has just been, you know, I, we live in an age where there's a lot of great material on YouTube. So YouTube's probably helped me out a lot as well. Um, but just by doing, just doing every day and just sort of, um, you know, talked about that, me saying like that year period. And if I didn't manage to make, make ends meet, I'd go back to marketing. After a year, I wasn't making ends meet. But rather than going back to marketing, I started working in a pub in the evening so that I could spend the daytime oh. writing um and so yeah just sort of just writing just you know i was doing my own stuff but i was also writing to brief because it's quite different um to sit down and write you know for for a brief which is very descriptive and you've got a clear starting point versus like well i'm writing for myself I, I, in theory i could do anything um so yeah and it was just sort of bit by bit every day um hammering away just keeping going that consistency and and just you know you're only as good as you say you're only as good as your last piece of music but actually i'm more interested in you're only as good as your next piece of music mm. um so 
pushing to make sure that every bit of music I make is is better than the one that's come before. And that way, you know, hopefully there's a an upward trajectory. What was the point then that uh, felt like a, a turning ground? Like it was starting to, the hard work was starting to pay off. <sighs> yeah, it's funny this. It's, I don't think I have one per se, because even now, I, you know, it's that whole concept of when did you, when did you feel like you'd made it? I still don't think I've made it. I'm a freelance composer. I, I never know where the next bit of work is coming from. Um, I certainly, you know, I think you, I sort of hit plateaus where I get to a point where I'm like, wow, my mixes are kind of really in a good place now. Um, but I think the, the the one turning point was when I was able to quit working in the pub because like this when I alluded to I got this gig working at the National Theatre as a musical director. That was, you know, that was uh, what turned out to be. We did a, I think we did a run. It was like at least sort of ten weeks work, and you know, well paid. And then the show did really well, so it got put into the big theatre for another run. So it was probably a year's worth of work all told. But that that meant me that I could get out of the pub um, and start working like that. And then, you know, there's, there's another guy who used to make charity films, basically sort of promo videos for charities. And he used to come to me for bespoke music every month and all those little things as well sort of helped. But yeah, I think it's, if you think of like an upward trajectory an upward, you know, graph, then you sort of feel like you plateau for a little bit. And then all of a sudden there's a, there's a little jump mm. and it, you don't even really know what the jump is, but it's just in terms of, you know, capabilities or like a, a really cool job that comes through. But, um, but yeah, I still don't feel like, you know, I'm very lucky to, to earn a living from doing what I do um, without a doubt. And, and, I, and I love it. Um, but that kind of whole idea of making it, I think I'm so focused on, you know, the next stage, next step. Yeah that I sort of, I probably should actually spend more time celebrating the little victories when they, you know, the victories when they do happen, I'm probably guilty of not doing that. Um, but yeah, I, I don't think I'll ever make it because I think I, I just have very sort of high <laughs> expectations for myself and, and what I want to achieve. I think the difference is I've stopped beating myself so, beating myself up so much for not, for, you know, for, for every second that I'm not there. It's like just understanding. It's a great quote. Tony Robbins said, you know, you don't, you don't plan to seed and expect come back the following day expecting to see a tree. It takes time. You plant the seed and there's, there's time, water, nurturing, um, and eventually it grows into a, into a big, big tree and you'd never say of that tree, oh, oh now it's made it. Um, it's it's still yeah. growing constantly. Yeah, actually, yeah. And uh, something that's intrigued me, I've, I'd, I'd have to think hard now, but I don't think I've actually uh, spoke to a composer before. But what's your process like for creating music? Well, it's funny you should ask that because it's kind of, it's a bit in flux at the moment. <clears throat> um, so I've, I've had a couple of guests on my podcast recently who've talked very much, they draw on improvisation. And as part of their creative process, the first thing they kind of sit down and do is just improvise on the piano um, without any brief, without sort of going, right, this is what I'm going to do. They just sit down and do kind of what feels right. Um, so I think drawing on that, I'm, what I'm trying to do with my creative process is just sit down every day and create something. Um, and like we're talking about right for the bin, almost be unattached to the outcome, but quite often it starts, particularly if I've got a brief and I've got references, you know, we want music, this like this, I think quite often I'll put on a Spotify playlist of, of the references and kind of immerse myself in, um, in the music. Obviously I don't want to sort of dwell too much on that because obviously you don't want to start then trying to recreate 
um, the tracks that you're listening to, you want it to kind of be original. But I think just first of all, kind of finding a space. Um, but again, you know, chatting to um, Isabel Waller-Bridge recently, and she she looks at, she reads books or poetry or looks at art as a way to inspire her kind of musical creative process. So I'm kind of really interested in the idea of finding inspiration outside of actual actual music. Um, but yeah, it's just sit down at a, generally a piano now rather than a guitar. It used to be the guitar and just, just play with ideas. And I tend to work with harmony. So I kind of come up with, particularly as a singer songwriter, I kind of come up with chords that I feel work together um, and then sort of develop those out. But I think as well, there's a bit of a misnomer. It's like you sort of listen to the final products of a piece of music and, you know, some of my pieces of music do just sort of flow. Like there's, there's, there's one I've got out at the moment, which is hopefully getting picked up for a Disney trailer, which literally it felt like in three days, it just fell out of me and was incredible. And there's other pieces of music where you are literally flogging it for weeks, changing it and like, come on and, and just wrestling it into some semblance of something good. So yeah, that, that creative process sometimes is just effortless and you know it's just like oh let's hear my chords great let's try this sort of um violin line yeah that's working nicely what about a vocal here oh yeah that's great and it just sort of grows and it's by the end you're like oh, amazing this is exactly it and then other times where you yeah i mean there's also an argument like those tracks that seem to take forever there's an argument that maybe at some point i should actually have just walked away um and left it um but yeah i i I think I'm increasingly feeling like the important part of creativity almost starts before you sit down to be creative. You like inspiration can come from anywhere um, in life, in nature, going out for a walk, going to a museum. And I think trying to ensure that I have kind of a balanced and um, stimulated life in terms of what's going on around me, hopefully then feeds into that sort of creative process and, and makes it, yeah, hopefully each creative process is then that effortless one rather than me like flogging something for, for weeks at a time. Does that answer your question? It does. It does perfectly, perfectly. There's there's absolutely nothing worse than a dragged out process and then it really begins to feel like a chore. Yeah. And I think in that instance, you sort of go, okay, I mean, I had a track a few weeks ago, like for a, uh, like a, it was a trailer music for a horror brief and I, I think it probably took me about seven or eight days, maybe more. And I got to the end of it and I was like, I should have, I should have canned this after day two and gone, let's start a new idea. Um, I mean, it was okay in the end, but it's like, you know, what's the opportunity cost? Is your time better spent coming up with something new? I think yeah. it's important to remember that it's, it's okay to let go of something and go, do you know what? Maybe I'll come back to this one day, maybe not. But maybe in this instance right now, I'm going to find inspiration in a, in a new idea. Sit down, just try something new and maybe that will sort of... Because I think I always feel as well like music is about emotion and music is about engaging the listener emotionally. You know, you think of any, you know, from commercial music to, to even to, you know, what I'm doing with TV and film. And I always think like if I, the more emotion I can put into the music, the more likely that is to emotionally engage somebody else so you know getting stressed and frustrated and whipping a track to death it i'm whipping emotion out of it there's no emotion going into that other than anger and aggression and that's maybe well i don't know maybe that's what was needed for the horror brief but yeah i think it's just just being conscious of that and going like okay well this isn't working let's let's take a step back um and, yeah. and re regroup yeah yeah and 
working I take it with composing you know you're not just confined to one genre you're kind of open to any sort of genre you know today it could be rock tomorrow it could be classical is that something that you uh, deal with well is it good to be able to be so versatile yeah I I think actually sometimes for me that could be a a bit of a curse i think i am a sort of a, a jack of all trades and you know there are composers out there particularly within production music library who've made a career been able to sort of cross lots of different genres um and i kind of see myself in that camp to a certain extent um at the same time you know there's there is merit in specialization merit in getting really good at doing i think you compose we composers should always play to our strengths um, so, you know, I'm generally deal within the world of real instruments. I'm first and foremost, well, saxophone, well, clarinet, saxophone, first instruments, guitar, piano. So I'm suited to doing things with real instruments and there's no point in me sort of trying to get good at writing techno because I don't listen to techno. I don't particularly mm-hmm. like techno. So leave that to people out there who love it and, and sort of doing that all day, every day. Um, and I sort of tend to sort of stick to kind of quite emotive stuff i like i love funky music um and you know funk and soul and anything sort of folk related like i did an album of music for universal called filmic folk which was emotive folk instrumentation but with big strings and and sort of you know real kind of filmic feel to it so focusing on that and playing to my strengths but at the same time there's something quite interesting like at the moment i'm doing sort of a lot of sort of orchestral trailer music um but with with rappers um, and doing hip hop vocals. Now I'm not, I, I, I probably, I probably could do a hip hop track, but at the same time, you know, there's loads of kids out there um, doing sort of amazing hip hop. And for me, it's sort of like a, a middle-aged white guy to sort of try and sort of do convincing hip hop. Um, which is, you know, there's no point. I might as well leave that to the guys that are doing it all day, every day. But at the same time, I'm having a lot of fun, like, you know, the, the, the rappers that I work with, they're handling the sort of hip hop side of it. And because it's hybrid, I don't have to sort of create something which feels authentically hip hop. This is very much, this is an orchestral with orchestra, with hip hop flavor and, and a rapper. So I, yeah, I love that challenge of, of being able to sort of work out. Cause I'm, I think that's, I'm quite good at that, being able to sort of break a track down, listen to it, constituent parts, and then rebuild it and sort of go, okay, well, this is what's happening here with this reverb and these instruments are doing this. Um, but I think, I'm trying at the moment to sort of just narrow down my focus a bit so that I can, you know, start to have a speciality and also a kind of a unique creative voice. Because I think if you spread yourself across lots of genres, that can potentially dilute your creative voice a bit. Um, mm. And I'm I, I'm very much kind of in that sort of pursuit of sort of understanding and hearing what my kind of creative voice is at the moment. So, um, so yeah. Play to, I think I play to play to my strengths wherever possible, and as I say, I'm starting to narrow down the focus, but not too much because I kind of enjoy doing you know lots of different things. But then maybe the scope to you know merge those yeah. genres together. It's a it's a great answer. The uh, the whole classical with hip hop though, that's something I've never actually came across before. It seems uh, like almost it shouldn't work, but it it probably does. Yeah, it's like you know you sort of. I mean, I I love beats. Um, and I think this is, you know, and let's face it, you know, certainly old school hip hop is all sort of sampled funk tracks and ultimately funk is, you know, that's what I love. Um, some of the more modern beats is kind of very much kind of sampled sounds. Um, when you sort of think of, uh, um, modern hip hop or even, um, 
yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many different sort of subgenres of um, of it. Um, but yeah, just you know, having fun splicing those. And there's a you know, what was the um, there's a great trailer for the music trailer for um, what's the Mar- the Marvel track uh, Black Panther, mm. um, which is this incredible sort of. I mean, already trailer music is often hybrid because you've got orchestral blended with sort of synths and sort of big synth sounds. So then throw in sort of like a, um, a hip hop beat and all of a sudden we've got something really interesting. Um, and yeah, the Black Panther trailer um, is definitely worth checking out because it kind of, it, it, it merges all three genres together into something really interesting. And I think, you know, as a, as a creative, you're constantly looking to explore pushing boundaries and sort of, and, and try, you know, create something new and not that kind of like or you know hip orchestral hip hop is new it's been you know it's been around for a while but certainly there's a lot of fun to be had with sort of splicing those um those different genres together so at the beginning i mentioned you've uh you've done work for the likes of the bbc universal yeah big guys like that how do you actually go about networking in the industry and making it to the stage where you're working with those guys uh yes networking believe it or not is something that i'm notoriously bad at and it's weird. It's it's hard to actually, when I th- think back and sort of try to trace what, how these relationships came about, I, it's quite hard. I mean, so certainly with the BBC that came through, a, you know, that, that came through a producer, it, it's usually personal relationships. Um, I've always been a big believer in sort of having my shop window on my website there so people can see. And I do get kind of, you know, um, people contacting me out of the blue. Um, in fact, the, the trailer music company I'm working with at the moment, ASX or Audio Socket ASX in the US, came out of them contacting me and asking me to run um, a course for them on, on teaching their roster of artists how to write music for sync. Um, so how to write music for TV and film. Um, the universal was very much a kind of like me being proactive. Um, I had sort of parted companies with this. She wasn't my manager. She was an a manager who was sort of sending me music briefs. I parted company with her and wasn't getting any music briefs anymore. So I thought, well, rather than sitting around waiting for the phone to ring, I'm going to sort of be proactive and and create my own, um, based off of like, you know, what, what, what floats my boat? What, what inspires me? What, what, what I really love to write and produce right now. And that was, I mentioned earlier, filmic folk. So I, I kind of wrote seven pieces of music. I picked the best three. I got them produced up using almost entirely real instruments um, because I'm a big advocate for, you know, as, as good as, you know, the synths and, and VSTs get, there's n- never, ever as good as a, an experienced musician playing a real instrument. Um, so got together, you know, cobbled together sort of cellists and violin players and drummers and, and sort of got these three tracks um produced up to a really high standard i mixed them myself but then i also got like a a mix engineer guy called jake jackson who does a lot of work with spitfire he came in and he did does he used to do these sessions where he'd come to your studio and just sort of listen and have a little sort of mix and go through them so i I wanted to just make sure that the the mix was as good as possible and that was a great experience i learned a lot from jake um and then i submitted these to to universal to this guy that i'd met i'd met him once through a friend I'd run into him again at a music event and then I ran into him at the bus stop because <laughs> he happened <laughs> to live near my studio and so he was a producer at Universal and I, I just sort of said hey Andrew can I send you I've got some music which I think would be really good for the catalogue I'd also identified in the Universal catalogue they didn't have anything like this so I was also sending them something specifically I felt there was a hole in their catalogue for 
And I said, can I send you them? And he was like, yeah, sure, send me them. Um, and they really liked them and they took them. Um, and then they came back to me and asked me to do another seven tracks. And then uh, just before the pandemic, I just did another album for them as well. So it's a combination. It's, it's, it always, I think, boils down to personal relationships, uh, something mm-hmm. that I've always seen networking as something that I do when I haven't got any work on. So <laughs> I'll be busy for a year, two years. Uh, all of a sudden it dries up. And then all of a sudden Jim popped back up with the scene. Oh, hey, everyone, how's it going? Whereas actually... You need to be, I need to be nurturing those relationships constantly. But also, I don't like the term networking. I prefer, I like to, I coined the term community building because networking sounds really kind of corporate and sort of like almost like you've got, there's an agenda. Whereas community building is actually just building up a community of like minded people with whom you have a good relationship. It's like not, you know, an honest relationship, not I'm just friends with you because hopefully you can help me out. It's like, you know, we, we, we are friends and we, we have similar yeah. um, values and beliefs and, and interests. Um, so yeah, I think that community building needs to be sort of ongoing and it's something that I'm, I think I'm getting better at now and certainly making time for even, even when I'm like mega busy, it's like make time to sort of reach out and talk to people and, and just, just, yeah, just keep those yeah, relationships yeah. going. I actually really like that now because uh, community building versus networking. Yeah. Because for me, when I heard when I hear the word networking, it's it's a very harsh word, and it's I automatically think of cold calling or yeah. cold e- emailing, you yeah. know. And the thoughts of those two things fill me with anxiety, <laughs> you know, because yeah. like with cold emailing or cold calling, you're going eighty percent of the time you're going to get no results. Sure. You know, you'll you'll get lucky. Yeah. But no community building is. Obviously, it sounds nicer, but the whole concept of it, you know, you're you're building a community of like minded people and in a community when people start to succeed, they'll bring others with them. Absolutely. You know, and it's as as well as like, you know, you say, as you say, it's it fills you with dread, but you you can't really build a relationship via email or on Instagram or on Facebook. Relationships are face to face. And, you know, like what you're doing with this podcast and what I'm doing with my podcast is you're creating a context for conversation where actually a real relationship can develop as a result of that rather than just some sort of fleeting um, sort of meeting or, but interesting what you're saying as well about the um the cold emailing i think there's there's two things there's one you can sort of rock up to a networking event which finally after covid we're allowed to (laughs) sort of uh, see people again but there's always this sort of weirdness is like am i allowed to shake your hand now or what how does this work yeah Um, and then there's this sort of like the kind of outreach of cold emailing which um i still do to a certain extent but i've what i've tried to do with the cold emailing is kind of reframe that as in i'm not really expecting because I think when, you, when you're cold emailing, you're essentially hoping that your email falls in that person's inbox at exactly the time that they need someone like you with your abilities and your skills, which, mm. you know, is the probability of that happening is very, very slim. But I think if you reframe it and think of like, well, that's the first time that they're exposed to your name. Hopefully they read the email, but if not, they've seen the name. So, you know, maybe when you pop up on LinkedIn, they've seen it again. And it's the whole idea of like multiple times when you sort of, sort of contact or touch somebody yeah. with time, with multiple repetitions. Cause I like with the example with universal music, I think because I'd met this guy, this producer from universal three times, we'd had enough time together to sort of develop a little bit of a relationship. It wasn't me going in cold because I've, I've never had, I've never, I've tried pitching albums to other companies where I've not known the person 
and that's never worked. I've tried mm. it with BMG. I've tried it with Extreme. I've tried it with loads of companies. And it doesn't work. It's that initial contact and just having a little bit of a personal relationship that means they open the email. That means they listen to the music because they, you know, people in the music industry receive so much unsolicited material, so many emails. They can't feasibly read them all. They can't feasibly listen to all the music. So you've got to give them a reason to listen to yours, and and that personal relationship is the ultimate in um and yeah. even then there's no guarantees but at least they're listening at least they're reading um and maybe they'll give you a response and they're engaging with you and even if nothing comes from that that's fine um but just then it's okay well how do i stay in touch without being the annoying person that just sort of pops up every every week going have you got any work for me yet um, <laughs> so yeah 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 i have to admit i i before the podcast i never thought i'd be in a position to get called emails but obviously since the podcast has grown a bit i do get yeah a good few cold emails but like you were saying not a lot of them tend to stand out no. you know and there's nothing worse than when i find that someone emails me they've clearly never listened to the podcast you know like i've had emails from authors of cookbooks yes wanting to come on the podcast <laughs> And I'm like, this is a music podcast. Yeah. What are you going to talk about? You know, yeah. are we going to talk about your concerts and then the last five minutes throwing a recipe? Sure. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's funny, isn't it? When you're on the receiving end. So do you, do you, do you answer? Do you get, do you, all those people that come to you cold email, do you answer them, all of them or not? Yes. Okay. No, well, hey. no, 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 honestly, okay, okay. I, I don't. <laughs> no. And because, yeah, as you say, I, I wrote a blog post about this a couple of years ago about like a four point technique for approaching people. So many of those emails come in and they just go, hi. And it's like, if you do a little bit of research, you know, your name is Brian. So hi, Brian, all of a sudden you've got an increased percentage chance of you taking an interest. I always say the subject's really important. Make the subject something relatable or something that's going to get someone's attention. That's another really important part. And then, you know, make it specific because a lot of people do that blanket email so this cookbook person's probably just basically got a list of podcasts and sent out one email to the whole thing it's like yeah that's never going to work you have to a be sort of strategic about who you're approaching but also b speak to the person reading it because you can tell if it just says hi and then you've got this generic email i'm like delete you you haven't spent the time to sort of research whether or not i'm the right person to speak to why should i take the time to email you back ultimately so um i do try to answer as many emails as possible but um if if they haven't written my name if it's not addressed to me it's an immediate nope sorry gone yeah yeah that's definitely a good rule to uh to go by anyway yeah. you know everything you've said there it makes sense if they don't put the time in you're they're not worth the t your time absolutely. you know yeah, but um can you Tell us a bit about the behind the scenes process of getting a song, even a song like Crazy Frog, as we <laughs> mentioned, to, uh, yeah. to number one. So I think that, well, I think the one similarity between the Crazy Frog getting to number one and a lot of the other songs that get to number one is the huge amount of money that's thrown at it. I, I think people kind of maybe misunder underestimate how much money is goes into getting a track to number one. Um, and the Crazy Frog is a bit different because obviously the Crazy Frog didn't start out as a commercial artist. The, the Crazy Frog started out as a viral sensation on YouTube. Um, Jamba, who were the, the company that sort of bought the rights to the Crazy Frog, because the, the Crazy Frog initially was 
I think it was a Danish guy who did the ring, ding, ding, ding. <laughs> and he recorded that and put it to the picture of a race car. And the, it was a, it was meant to be a sanity test. It's like, if you can look at this picture of a race car and listen to ring, ding, 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 and not laugh, then that means you're insane. <laughs> then <laughs> right. I, I think a Swedish guy then sort of got created the little crazy frog and put that to the ring, ding, ding, ding. And then all of a sudden the crazy frog was bought. Jamba came in and bought the rights to that. And it was just a, a viral phenomenon on the internet. Jamba behind that were pumping a lot of money into TV advertising because they were selling it as a ringtone. Mm. So they were putting like literally ridiculous amounts of money into advertising the crazy frog. I was, you know, in on calls whereby, you know, normally ITV have their air, their advertising airtime booked up like months and months and months in advance. Jamba were throwing the kind of money at them that had them sort of like bumping their clients uh, to, to get <laughs> right. the crazy frog. And it was ridiculous. Um, and then obviously from that whole phenomenon, there was the producer in Berlin who did the um, ding, 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 which is the bit that is the axe the left. It's basically the theme tune from Beverly Hills Cop. Jan Hammer, I think, did it originally. Did that. And, you know, with with that momentum, there's this whole kind of thing with, with PR, you know, you're hot when you're hot. So when you've got that momentum of the viral sensation on YouTube, you you literally couldn't put the TV on for more than five minutes without seeing the crazy frog ad. And sometimes, oh, yeah, it, it was ridiculous, wasn't it? It was just a, yeah. a, a, a sort of like oppressive almost. And sometimes you'd have the, it twice in the same ad break. Um, so that with that momentum, and then you sort of like put that song out there as well. Um, obviously everyone was sort of downloaded and then and got it to number one. But yeah, it was partly that sort of PR momentum, but yeah, just huge, huge amounts of money were thrown at it. And what people probably don't realize is that after that, Jamba spent a lot of time and money trying to recreate the Crazy Frog. At one point, there was a skateboarding teddy bear singing La Bamba. Um, <laughs> and I remember sitting down with a, I went through a list of sort of like classic songs. They were asking me to come up with, you know, what songs can we do as a cover? So I was sort of coming up with this huge list of songs that we could potentially cover. And that's the thing about a viral a viral video. If if people knew how to do viral videos, everyone would be doing viral videos all the time. The fact of the matter is that they tap into some weird site guys that one particular time in history and you, you can't create that. Um, and they, you know, we couldn't recreate the crazy frog, um, that we tried. Um, but yeah, that momentum and serious amounts of money is basically what got <laughs> crazy frog to number one. I, sorry, I really am very sorry. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. But, uh, as we mentioned, you kept a uh, cold play from number one yes so that's, exactly that's the good thing every cloud has a silver lining bro that's right <laughs> exactly exactly and um how how do you stand out with your brand through storytelling yeah it's funny you should ask this because i was on a call yesterday where everything i sort of believed about story and brand sort of was maybe thrown into question oh um so so yeah, so just to sort of elaborate on what I just said there, I was talking to people yesterday and these guys are all writers and sort of, um, you know, they know story because they, they, they write books and they were, so, they were saying about the, the reason people like stories is, um, well, specifically invest in a story is because of how it relates to them. Ultimately, we're all self-interested and as much as we sort of, you know, might really love you know, your, your story, Brian, the bit that really resonates is about your story is the bit that we can relate to and the 
bit that sort of potentially um, relates to us. So I think with sort of brand and story, I also think doing your own brand and story is really, really hard to do. So like as a, a modern day artist, or if you've got your own business, and I tend to sort of do everything myself, it's really hard to be objective. Um, mm. It's like that classic thing of writing a biog. It's really hard to write your own biog because you're basically sort of like waxing lyrical about yourself, which can actually sometimes feel a bit weird or you sort of don't want to sound arrogant. So, um, so yeah, in terms of brand and story, it's it's creating it's creating i suppose mystique it's creating something that people believe in there's an amazing talk by a guy called simon sinek who his catchphrase it's all about the why and it's like he says that people don't buy what you do they buy why you do it and that was how steve jobs managed to create apple and 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 have people standing in line for you know a week to get the latest mm-hmm. apple product is because he just believed in making beautiful beautiful devices, machinery, technology. Um, and the, the way that Martin Luther King managed to get hundreds of thousands of people to his, I have a dream speech. It's like, they were, they were, you know, that, and this was in the day before the internet, this was, you know, there was limited ways to sort of reach people. It's because what he was saying, I have a dream. I believe is like those people believed what he believed. And as such, they felt sort of like a kin kinsmanship with him. And uh, 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 there was a, there was a relationship there. And I think that's, you know, true of, of music as well is like, if you, if you believe that, you know, certain things about music and like, so for example, I, something that I bang about on about all the time is, uh, imperfections in music. And, and, you know, when, when you have a drummer playing live, there are slight imperfections in, in the, in his drumming, but that's the mm. groove. That's the bit of magic when, you know, Adele, sings a vocal you know she's imbuing that with emotion it's not perfect and quite often actually if you i can't remember i was listening to an adele track recently and it wasn't tuned but we live in an age where technology we want everything to be perfect and actually i think you know we the listener we actually like those imperfections i mean certainly within music production i'm using plugins so music software all the time that are emulating um, gear from the 70s 60s and 70s and it's because when you put music through a, a, a an 1176 compressor you know, which was developed in the 60s or 70s, you're getting harmonic distortion and sort of overtones and it's doing something to the signal. And it's those little imperfections that we, that we, the listener, love. We don't know it necessarily on a conscious level, but we do. So that's kind of something that I talk about because I believe in it very strongly. And I think other people who share that belief that maybe sometimes music has a tendency to be over-polished and overly perfect um, maybe that's when my brand starts to resonate with them that actually if it's about emotion making it too squeaky clean it's very very difficult to have an emotion any sort of relationship with a robot you want yeah. you want that sort of that relationship and that that humanity in it and that's what I kind of always trying to do with with my music so yeah in terms of brand I think it's that it's like what what's the story what's the part of your story what's the part, still part of your brand that is going to resonate with other people like-minded people um because that's that's you know as a musician that's who you're um that's who you're trying to communicate with you're you you don't want to just sort of you don't try and convert people who listen to hip-hop into listening to your sort of emotive piano singer songwriter tracks you want people who love piano song singer songwriter tracks and if you sing about love then those people are going to also be kind of like, you know, have romantics. And again, I always talk about Adele because I just, um, you know, I 
don't really listen to her music, but I think what she does is phenomenal. And every album she brings out just goes straight to number one because it's so relatable and her the way she performs and, and what she sings about. And it's always she's always whinging about having lost lost a boyfriend, isn't she? Well, it certainly was <laughs> yeah. in the original albums. Um and just people kind of really relate to that and they go, Yeah, me too. And it's like I would have listened to this and sit in the window and cry. Um <laughs> so yeah, so I think that's the the story and the brand thing. Um it's you know what what do I relate to in that that person's story? Um, but yeah, I'm I'm whilst I have done marketing and you know I'm probably better placed than others to understand branding and, and story. It's a it's a big topic, and I think there's a there's a lot of people out there who um, who understand it better than I. Mm, yeah, yeah. I uh, you made me think of something I always say as well about concerts. Actually, yeah, I hate going to a concert that sounds like the record. Yeah. You know, I actually actively go to a concert looking for the imperfections. Yeah. You know, absolutely. it makes for a better experience. Yeah. Well, I think that's, you know, that's where great producers come in as well, because, uh, you know, when you've got a band in the studio, well, I say that perhaps less so now, but, you know, back in the day, you used to get a band into the studio and you were trying to recapture what they used to do, what they do on stage. You're trying to get that live environment and that live energy of how they play on stage when they're sort of buzzing and they've probably had a few mm. beers and they've got like <laughs> hundreds of people, thousands, whatever, going crazy for them. That energy is what you kind of want to capture when you um, record an album. And great producers know how to do that. You know, uh, we're talking about this on one of, our pod, one of my podcasts recently about the Red Hot Chili Peppers album, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and Rick Rubin in the studio with those guys. He managed to capture the, the, the crazy energy of the Red Hot Chili Peppers on that album. And it's incredible. And you listen to Led Zeppelin as well, like the production on that. Um, and so, yeah, sometimes albums tend to be a bit overproduced and overly perfect and you tune up the vocals and you make sure the drums are really tight. And sometimes you even sort of put them to quantize into grid so they're exactly on the beat and it yeah. kind of it sucks the life out of them that, that that same energy that you're talking about that you get when you go to a gig and there's the, like this exchange of energy between the band and the crowd i actually i feel like nowadays like 90 percent of music is too over polished you know yeah. it needs to be scaled back to like you were saying back to the 70s when they were able to and they were, act, they were actually actively emulating the live performance you know, it's too, it's almost, I don't know, you can't fall in love with a song that's too clean and polished the no. same way you can as it's a bit more gritty and, yeah. you know. Absolutely. No, I completely agree, mate. I think it's, I think it's possibly symptomatic of the fact that increasingly more music is made in, in the on the computer rather than mm. sort of in a live scenario. You know, think about uh, a lot of, you know, you listen to the top 40 and the, the vast majority of that is kind of made by people on, on computers but again this i think you know i might be reading between the lines here but you know as soon as um mp3s came about and you know file sharing napster and then it moved on to spotify the way we consume music is different because you know record labels are no longer making loads of money from selling physical merchandise um they are they're making less money so it's mm. like okay well how how can we cut costs on the production of an album well first of all we just get 
some guy producer in a bedroom doing it all in the box because then we don't have to pay for studio time we don't have to pay for a mix engineer we don't have to pay for musicians um we can sort of have someone do it so then it just sort of it as a financial model it makes more sense to have people making music in their bedrooms than it does to have renting the big studios i mean case in point you go to london i think the, probably 20 years ago, there's probably 150 studios in London. You probably, I don't know the figures. I can't remember it off the top of my head, but you're probably down to about 20 now because mm. it's just, they, they, they couldn't make it work because it's the, the record labels weren't making money from music in the same way. And therefore they couldn't keep these studios going with, with business. So, and you know, I, this is me as well. I, I do a lot of stuff in, in the box and, you know, I can get amazing results from just using a computer. But as you say, I think those results are better when you sometimes bring it out of the box and be out of the yeah. computer and go, okay, let's just, let's create something in a live environment because with the best will in the world, you can try and program drums on a computer, but it's never going to be as good as a drummer playing, playing in, no. a, in a room. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's not going to be as authentic. No, I actually, I don't know. I'd, I'd hate to see where music is going to be in 20 or 30 years. Yeah. If it keeps going down this path. Yeah, I, it's funny. I I kind of agree, but at the same time, I sort of think back to how my dad always used to sort of talk about music. I was listening to a kid, and I was always said like, "I'm not going to be like that. I'm going to stay open minded and really embrace modern music." But, um, and I think there is still, you know, I, I'm always going to gravitate towards, you know, musicianship and people playing instruments rather than you know, program mm -hmm. stuff, just because it speaks to me and and. Um, and that's, that's what I'll always listen to. Um, but again, you know, as we were saying earlier, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun splicing genres of, of, of music, um, with, with trailer music as well. So I think it's always that case of there's always amazing music out there. It's not necessarily the stuff that you hear on the Spotify playlists and on the radio, because that's curated based on, yeah. sort of, you know, there's certain companies have quite a bit of power and they make sure their music's at the top of the, the listening pile. Um, but you know, even as a kid, you know, at school, there was a lot of people who would just listen to the radio and that's the music they liked. I was always kind of like, hmm, I reckon there's got to be better stuff than this. And I, I would actively go out and spend week, you know, go to HMV on a weekend and spend three hours in there on a listening post, listening to sort of latest albums and things like that. Um, because I was sort of interested in, in that process and finding stuff that spoke to me. But I think a lot of people are just sort of happy with, you know, it's like, okay, well, I listen to that. So irrespective of where mainstream music goes, I think there'll always be people out there doing like really interesting stuff but you might just have to you probably have to look harder to find it because there's so much more music you know once upon a time you couldn't release music unless you could get into a studio whereas now everyone's releasing music so it's um it's a bit harder to sort of um, find the stuff that really resonates with you but um, fingers crossed brian there'll still be some really good music in uh, in 20 2030 yeah hopefully although i'll be uh i'll be past middle age then by a good bit actually so i'll probably be still hating the, the <laughs> music the young kids are listening to it's not like it was in my day <laughs> yeah. but i wouldn't mind like i love all music from the 70s and i wasn't even alive in the 70s yeah you know absolutely well weirdly i think amongst sort of like uh younger generations at the moment there's a lot quite a lot of people kind of really into um 90s music and, and 80s like my mm -hmm. my niece who's 20 seems to be sort of quite into very much into 80s fashion and 80s is listening to quite a bit of 80s and 90s music so there's always that kind of weird romance with with yeah. the sort of the, the decades or periods that have come gone before it's uh they all always tend to go in circles mm. but um the uh we'll just touch on the the future 
Yes. What are the future plans or where would you see, like to see yourself and LARP music in the future? It's a good question. It's also one I'm sort of asking myself at the moment. Um, I'm really enjoying trailers, working on trailers, um, because I love kind of orchestrating big epic um, tracks. So I'm sort of investing more and more time in um, working on trailers. I think, to be honest with me, Brian, it's it's all about, I try not to set um, targets based on sort of extrinsic, you know, I want to be earning X amount of money. I want to be doing this, that, and the other. If I'm engaged with creatively inspiring and fulfilling projects on a daily basis, and I can continue that momentum because, you know, sometimes certainly in the past, I've sort of taken on projects that didn't bring me joy and that I felt like a slog. But if I can just be kind of true to myself and make sure that I'm only doing work that really kind of resonates with me um, and I'm doing that on a daily basis, then I think that's that's what I want for the future. It's more a case of how I want to feel on a day-by-day basis. And, you know, I think at the moment the work I'm doing is is great. I'm, I love trailers. Um, I did a great little um, video for um, Manchester City just before um, Christmas um, working on a campaign to kind of engage young people in understanding some of the, the water challenges that the world faces. Um, and yeah, and as, uh, yeah, if, if those kind of interesting projects. I think a blend of trailer. I do enjoy writing music to picture as well, so mixing it up with uh, writing music to picture. Um, and also, yeah, I think I'm even sort of getting close to that period as well. Every so often, every sort of few years, I sort of go, right, I need to do some of my own music now for me, um, which has no kind of like... Um, commercial objective it's like literally it's what i call soul music but it's not necessarily the genre soul music it's like it's music that i do literally just because i i really want to do it yeah um so um so yeah i don't know i'd like to see larp grow into um it, it, it's it's never going to be a massive company because i'm i'm too much of a sort of uh solopreneur i think I, I i don't can't handle the responsibility of having loads of employees and building it up so i'll only ever do as much work as i can sort of feasibly do on my own or with the sort of the guys my collaborators that i work with on a on a regular basis but um yeah as long as we're doing you know creatively inspiring stuff um then you know i'm 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 a happy bunny yeah yeah i really like that answer as well it's like um when we're younger at least i know when i was younger and it's faded since i've grown as I've grown older, I make myself sound really old in this episode. <laughs> yeah, well, um, very young. <laughs> um, as I grow older, it's kind of faded. But, you know, when you're younger, you're like, oh, I want to be a millionaire. I want to be hugely mm. successful. Yeah. But I'm even realizing as I age, I want to be, as long as I'm doing something that feeds my soul, Yeah, I'm happy. Exactly. You know, and I'm fulfilled. That's it. It's that, that realization that, you know, there are millionaires out there who are miserable. There are millionaires mm. out there who are depressed. There are, you know, people who on the face of it, you know, top of um, their game, they're, they're, they're depressed because you think, I think we live in a society whereby we're told if we consume more, we we have more, we get, get the right job, we get the right wife, we have the kids, we do. It's like people, you know, that's not what, well, it might be what makes you happy, but I think you have to be very clear on, on what the ultimate objective is and why you're doing it because to expect that if you have no financial worries that all of a sudden everything in your life is going to be right is is probably misguided mm-hmm. um, and having aware awareness of that you know money does not it's you know cliche but money does not buy happiness certainly you need a certain amount of it so that you've got shelter and clothing and what have you and, yeah. and you can you can live 
um, without a doubt. But you know, there, there, there's a, there is a graph that charts the happiness, and after a certain amount, that sort of that graph flattens off, and money no longer buys you happiness. So then you go, okay, well, what is it? And as you say, you know, so you, in, in your soul, your what, how you feel on a daily basis, that is a better way to inform you know happiness and, and contentment than than having. Because it's intrinsic. I just always think it comes from within rather than out without, yeah. which might sound sort of quite woo-woo. But I think, you know, every year I go through a process of setting goals for the year to come. And the last couple of years have been less about achieving financial milestones or getting certain jobs. It's been mm. more about, okay, what, what do I, how do I want to be, how do I want to feel on a day-to-day basis? Um, and so far, I feel that that has actually served me really well. Mm. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, we'll move on to the last couple of questions. So, if you could see any performer or artist from history in concert for one night only, who would it be? I think uh, it's a toss-up between James Brown and Michael Jackson. Ah, two two very good ones. Yeah, I, I mean, Michael Jackson. So, I mean, I have a great appreciation for Michael Jackson's music. I, I. I haven't sort of listened to it in the same way and loved it in the same way that I love James Brown's music. You know, you know I talked about it earlier with my, my roots in funk. I love funk, but Michael Jackson was such an incredible performer. Obviously I'm conscious that there's, there's, there's a whole kind of movement now, which might sort of slam me for how dare <laughs> I want to see a, a, you know, Michael Jackson given everything that's come to light uh, since his yeah. death, go and see him live. But for me, that that doesn't detract from the, the musician and the, the performer that he was, and I, I think I'd love to have. He was a showman as well. He knew how to dance. He, he put on a show, so I'd, I'd love to have seen him. And similarly, James Brown, because I think I'd, you know him and his band were incredible. I'd love to have seen them um, them live. Yeah, I actually hear Michael Jackson a lot, even nowadays, believe it or not. And mm-hmm. like you said, you would think people would be turning away from it, but I think when it comes to him, you need to separate the music from the man absolutely absolutely yeah i agree you know. and uh the next one if you could spend 24 hours locked in a room with any performer or artist from history who would it be um oh, that's a good question um see my my, my immediate thought went to uh arnold schwarzenegger but <laughs> he's not technically an artist is he but i just have uh, a real sort of admiration for that man. So I'd love to sort of look in a room with Arnold Schwarzenegger and pick pick his brain. I think it might be, it probably would be Hans Zimmer, I think. Right. Um, he's an, a phenomenal composer. Like everything he does is just incredible. Um, he seems to constantly be pushing the boundaries or you know just when you think he sort of reached his peak he sort of does something like the recent dune film and i kind of think wow he's done it again um so yeah i'd love to sit in a room with hans zimmer and pick his brains i'm going to try and get him on my podcast but I'm, I'm, i'm aware that that might be a very very difficult uh difficult thing to do but um you know i believe but yeah i think hans zimmer and to sort of just chat to him about his process his story um and um but it's always dangerous isn't it because when you meet your heroes they can sometimes fall short and so if i get into a room with hans zimmer and he turns out to be a bit of a dick i'm gonna have like <laughs> 55 minutes locked in a room with him like thinking oh god oh. i need to get out of here i don't i'm sure that wouldn't be the case um but yeah I, there's 
been times in history where in the past where I've kind of met people that have been like, oh my God, that's so-and-so and I've met them and I've been a I've been like really disappointed and but then similarly there's other times I've met people and I've gone oh my god that guy's like amazing so much more so than I'd perhaps I've ever given him credit for yeah yeah well Hans Zimmer given your profession is kind of predictable yes obviously we know what you would uh you would hope to learn from him but what would you hope to learn from Arnold Schwarzenegger (laughs) (laughs) well I think you know just I, th- I mean, it's partly because I grew up watching 80s movies um, mm. and I'm, I'm regularly, when, I, when I'm um, in London, I regularly meet up with a mate and we we sort of picking our way through sort of old 80s movies. And I think just like what he's achieved, he's gone from being born in a small town in Austria. He decided he wanted to be body champion, bodybuilding champion of the world. He made it happen. He decided he wanted to be a movie star. And despite everyone saying it would never happen because he's got a weird accent, he made it happen and probably be one of the biggest of all time. And then he decided he wanted to be governor of California and he made it happen. He's just, the, the guy has, he, he just dreams something and brings it to life. And I just think that's incredible. And even in the face of, you know, everybody telling him it's not possible. Um, he's got a great um, five point plan for success. And one of them is ignore the naysayers, work mm. your butt off, ignore <laughs> the naysayers. Um, so yeah, I just sort of, I just wanted to chat to him. Again, it's be risky because I mean, he seems to he come across as a really nice guy, but again, it's risky because, you know, an hour locked in a room with a, if, if he's not as nice as he seems. But I, I think I'd, I'd probably be in such awe of him that he could probably beat me up and I'd still love him afterwards. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'd be, uh, I'd be the same. Now, you've obviously read his autobiography, have you? Do you know what? I haven't. I've got it on my shelf. Really? I've got this massive hardback of his autobiography. Total, total Recall, is that the one? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've still not read it. So, yeah, I, I really need to read that. Oh, if you're a good? fan, you're going to love it. Okay, it's amazing. It's brilliant. It's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, the next one, is there a song that would appear on the soundtrack to your life? Um. Yeah, it's, it's so hard to kind of isolate... Uh, one particular song um because the thing is as well is like when when thinking about this question I sort of think okay that'd be a cool song but then I'm like wait a minute what does that say about me um (laughs) there's there's a number of sort of songs which I think have um just sort of inspired me um but I don't want I don't I haven't picked these but weirdly they're all kind of quite mopey songs and that's not me I'm not really a mopey sort of person but I think for some reason they've sort of they've um resonated on with me but i'm going to pick i'm going to pick an outside curveball here and it's probably a track that most people including yourself have not heard of um it's a song called song 26 by a guy called uh callum mcintyre who is an artist which i've had the immense pleasure of working with but that song when i first so the first time i ever heard it, it was just him on a piano in his bedroom an electric piano in his bedroom playing it and i don't think i have ever been struck by the lyrics of a song as much as I was with that song. Um, it's actually a song about, um, it's like kind of a song about mental health, really. It's a song about self-doubt. It's a song about imposter syndrome. It's about questioning yourself. It's about, you know, having the confidence um, to, to be yourself. Um, and I just, it really, really 
blew my mind and, and it moves me in a way that I, I'm not sure there are many other songs, if any other songs that have ever kind of moved me in, in quite the same way. So uh, yeah, I'm going with song 26 by Callum uh, McIntyre. Do you need me to do like a, a more sort of like well-known commercially known one as well? No, no. no? Okay. It's uh whatever song speaks to you. Yeah. That does on a, on a, all right. Yeah. On an, on an incredible level. Yeah. Brilliant. Brilliant. I'll, uh, I'll definitely have to look that one up. So sounds like a great song yeah it, it's one of those things it's like you know I might, if people might as well go and listen to it and i go what what's that but it's it's that classic thing isn't it i think a song is it's when you listen to a song or when you first hear a song and what's going on in your life at any particular time will sort of go some way to influencing um how how you receive it i mean there's certainly talking to a lot of the composers on my podcast you've kind of got this area between the ages of maybe 10 and 20, 25, but all the music within that period of time that people are exposed to goes a long way to shaping who they become as creatives themselves. And I think those are really formative years and that sort of music sort of provides that kind of soundtrack. Um, but yeah, the, the day that you hear a particular piece of music or the day that you hear a particular, like Rage Against the Machine, that first album, I can remember vividly the first time I ever saw that and it just spoke to me in a way that I'd, no music had ever spoken to me before. Um, and if I'd never heard it and I was to listen to it today, it, it might not resonate with me in quite the same way. But back yeah. then as a sort of 18-year-old kid, it was just like, what, what is this? Um, so, so yeah, so I hope people don't go and listen to Psalm 26 and go, what's it on about now? Well, <laughs> hey, if they do, they do. Um, I think that's the thing. It's a very, um, very personal thing, isn't it? Yeah, exactly, exactly. I I always find it interesting though how music is linked so strongly to memories. Like, and it's funny that you said like from ten to twenty or twelve to twenty or twenty five. I feel like any memory from my teenage years is linked to a song. Like yeah. it's almost like my teenage years have a soundtrack. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. Um, and you you hear that song and it Im- immediately transports you back to a specific time. I mean, obviously, you've probably heard it lots of times during your teens, but there'll be one particular occasion where it just transports you back and you go, oh, yeah, I remember hearing that for the first time. And there's just something, that weird, magic, serendipitous yeah. moment where the sort of planets align and it's sort of like, wow. Um, yeah. What would yeah, be the soundtrack? What would be the, 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 the track that would feature on the soundtrack to your life? Oh man, seriously. Yeah. <laughs> the, the tables have turned. Oh god. Uh God. Um Oh, I can't think of the name of it now, but it would you know uh Simon Garfunkel. Yes. You know Paul Simon. He has a song that he wrote for his daughter. And uh, it, it'd have to be that one. Okay. It's just when my daughter was born, I kind of stumbled upon this track and it's like it put everything I was feeling into words. Yes. So it would obviously have to go on the soundtrack to my life. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Interesting that that it's, it's when you heard that song, it's almost like he was singing about you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. Exactly. And I kind of, when I heard it the first few times, I was like, you know what? I wish I had actually wrote this song and mm. I could be like, give it to my daughter in years to come and be like, look, I wrote this for you. These, yeah. you know, cause it literally spoke to me so well. It was literally words that I wanted to say. Yeah. yeah. Again, the, uh, the power of music. Yeah. 
big time big time yeah because if you'd have heard that song you might have heard that song at another time in your life and it didn't resonate and if, or if yeah. you had it didn't because but at that particular time given the, the nature the subject material and and what have you i always remember with tears in heaven i used to thought the the acoustic version of tears in heaven that he did that eric clapton did at live mtv was was incredible um I, but i didn't never realize it was actually about the loss of his son um, yeah yeah and when i sort of found that out i was like oh wow i mean it just I mean, I loved the song as it was, but when I found out that out, it, all of a sudden it took on a whole new meaning and then sort of totally I think it embedded itself in my life in a, in a different way. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The final question, we'll flip it around. Is there something I should have asked you, but I didn't? Uh, no, the, I mean, the only, the only thing, you know, we were talking about concerts that made us. Um, obviously, I... I I mentioned a concert that broke me or certainly broke my, um, my performing persona. Um, there's, there were two other concerts that have kind of made me. The first one was the first one I ever saw, which was at the Bradford Rio in Yorkshire. Um, and it was a, it was a band of Hare Krishna monks. Christ. Oh, I say Hare Krishna monks. They were Hare Krishna. I don't know whether they were monks. I think they were, but they, they were like hardcore. They were kind of, um, around the time that Offspring and bands like that were kind of like popular. This was a, a band of, they were called Shelter, um, a band of Hare Krishnas and they, they, they knew how to rock. And I went and saw these guys live and it was the first time I did any stage diving. Um, <laughs> and it just, it was amazing. It was just like one of those sort of incredible moments that I remember forever. The idea of throwing yourself off a stage onto a load of people who ca caught you. I must've been yeah. maybe 15, 16 at the time. Um, that was a big concert. And the other one was, um, seeing the Philharmonic Orchestra at the Royal Albert Hall, they do this thing called the Space Spectacular, where they basically rinse all this, the music from Star Wars. There is loads of other stuff as well. And like the first time, I've seen it twice now, but the first time I ever saw that was the first time I'd ever properly seen an orchestra. And it's not that long ago. It's probably only 10 years ago. I was sat there as they, they first started off with the um, Close Encounters of a Third Kind. Da, 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 da. Played that. <laughs> And then they sort of like went straight from that into the Star Wars theme tune. And I was sat there clutching the arms of my seat, very shallow breath, just kind of tears were streaming down my cheeks. I've never experienced such a visceral musical moment in all of my life. It was incredible. Um, and I think in some way, even if I can't identify how, that was uh, that was definitely a concert that made me. Mm. I've always kind of thought that seeing, I've never seen an orchestra live now, but I've always thought that seeing an orchestra live would be the pinnacle of live music, you know, just to feel the music. Yeah, I yeah, I, I think I would agree. I think it is. And from, certainly for me, I got more from that. And it's obviously, you know, it's not a traditional gig. Everybody sat down and you are listening to the music rather than sort of like in a melee of people or in a mosh pit or, or whatever. But um, yeah, it was, for me, it was the most profound kind of musical experience um, I've ever had. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I highly, highly recommend it. Um, I think as well, you know, we're talking about the power of music to elicit memories. I think one of the reasons that I, you know, when I listen to Star Wars, that takes me back to being a six, seven-year-old kid watching on repeat and almost on a daily basis asking if I could watch Star Wars. Um, so that there's a certain amount of nostalgia in that music as well. And I always find that with, you know, I think maybe that's my love of TV and film music as well is I think, you know, a song 
a, a piece of music can be incredibly powerful, but when there's you associate it with a certain visual, it, there's a there's a kind of power to that music that transcends if it was just on its own, like a synergy almost. And so to, to sit through that space spectacular and listen to all these songs that have, have I've I known and loved in in TV and films growing up, it kind of transports me back to that nostalgic place. I think that's and it's incredible music. But the thing is, with an orchestra, it's sort of like it just goes. It goes right through you. You've got this sort of like a hundred musicians, and they're sort of you can just feel it. And you know, it's oh, it's just my yeah. mind. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. I'd say so. Well, listen, I've really enjoyed the last hour chatting with you and getting an insight into your musical history. Yeah, absolute pleasure, Brian. Thank you. Uh, thanks so, so much for having me on, and uh, it's been uh, interesting to chat into you. Uh, yeah, and good luck with uh, good luck with the, the podcast and the, the concerts that made us. Can I ask you a question? You can. What's the concert that made you? <laughs> it would be probably ACDC back in 2009. Wow. It uh, just everything. It was the middle of summer. It was an outdoor gig. There was tens of thousands of people at it. But it was, I think it was my first time seeing a concert on that scale. Mm. And then just like, as I was saying, I hate going to a gig and it being like you put the record on. But they, there was so much banter between the songs, but even the whole stage show, like they had a, a big train crashing through the back, the oh, backdrop wow. and stuff like that. You know, it was just mm. more so, it was so much more than just a concert. It was like a, a visual experience as well. You know, they really knew how to entertain and captivate the crowd. Yeah. So Amazing. that'll be definitely the one that made me anyway. Awesome. Why, hello there. I'm about to make a prediction. And that prediction is, you like podcasts. If that's true, then make your way over to the Cognitive Discourse, where we have monologues, short stories, and open discussions. And every now and then I get a little ranty. If this sounds like something you're interested in, then go check us out. We're streaming on all major platforms, and hell, we're even on YouTube. New episodes out every Friday. I hope to see you there. Hey guys, I really hope you enjoyed this episode. I for one surely did. Now, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Your five-star review will be read out on the show. And don't forget, you can now rate us on Spotify. You can find and follow us on all social media at Concerts That Made Us Podcast. And don't forget to check out the website at www.concertsthatmadeus.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can do so by signing up at patreon.com forward slash concerts that made us. So, until next time, keep rocking. Hey, hey, what are you guys still doing there? The show is over. It's over. You can go home. Go on. We'll see you next time. We'll be here. Bye.